Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast, where we take you beyond the margin, behind the scenes of the online magazine and deeper to the stories. I am your host, Michael Shields, and i got a, got another great podcast for you today. I'm real, real excited about this one. I'm pretty much really excited about all of them because, uh, you know, but by doing this, I am afforded the opportunity to re- talk to some really amazing people. Um, learn a whole lot. It just it can be really eye opening. Um, so I feel lucky, and that is definitely the case today. Where I talked to uh, Catherine McLean. Um, she's a re- research research psychologist uh, with expertise in studying psychedelics and meditation. She's the founding director of the psychedelic program in New York, where she leads trainings in psychedelic harm reduction. Um, Catherine, she's amazing. She's I, I think you're really going to love listening to her. And she's a, she's a true and passionate psychedelic ambassador, and in in that way, she's um, you know she she really helps uh, you know looks out for the well being, health, and ultimately the happiness of a of a whole lot of people. Um, it's remarkable what she has done and is doing for psychedelic education. Um, so it was definitely an honor to speak to her. Um, in in I, I, I found out about her work when I went to a, a, a microdosing forum here in Brooklyn um, that uh, featured Adam Strauss of the Mushroom Cure. Duncan Trussell was there. Um, what was it there? Oh, Viceland's uh, Hamilton. Uh, I can't think of his name. Uh, oh, Hamilton Morris was there. Uh, Sophia Korb and uh, Paul Austin was there. So some some pretty big names in psychedelic research and. Um, she was there and she just blew me away and I was, it was one of those things where like, I have to talk to her. So I was so thrilled when she said yes, uh, to the invite. Um, so in the podcast, we, uh, we discuss her work at the center for optimal living. Uh, we get into the reasons and benefits of psychedelic integration. Um, talk a lot about the stigma surrounding psychedelics and, uh, she, 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 teaches me about raft meditation, which is, which is a process she actually originated, which is fascinating. Uh, we talk about microdosing some and, and the openness, openness to experience, which is a huge potential benefit of uh, psychedelics, which fascinates me. It's something I believe in. Um, so it's a good one. Um, I hope you'll enjoy it, and I think, I think you're going to learn a whole lot. Here is my interview with Catherine McLean. Get it, let's get going. So, Catherine, thank you very much for joining us Beyond the March, and I'm so happy to have you here. Thank um, you. Yeah. Uh, so, wait, let's just start from the bottom, kind of. What, um, you know, with your, with your current position and, and what you're working on now, uh, 
What is the psychedelic program of New York? It's, I've also seen it. Is it the Center for Optimal Living that... Right, so there's some confusion about how these two things came to be. Yeah. The Center for Optimal Living was started about six years ago by Andrew Tatarsky and Jen mm-hmm. Talley. Mm-hmm. And Jen is a professor at the New School. They're both clinical psychologists. And Andrew had developed a form of psychotherapy specifically for substance users mm-hmm. that was based in compassion and understanding human beings for all of the reasons that they use substances yeah, okay. and basically meeting people where they're at and compassionately helping them decide for themselves their optimal relationship with substances. Are these people who are dealing with addiction? Or they Mostly with, dealing with, with addiction. That went, went Mostly so, dealing with addiction. Okay. And then during the process of that work, you know, most people who use psychedelics aren't seeking therapy. Yes. Yeah. But Andrew would come across occasional clients who would say, um, either uh, I had this really bad experience Mm -hmm. drinking ayahuasca or Mm -hmm. something and I don't know who to talk to about it, or it would come up as a good memory in the process of therapy. Like there was this experience I had when I was 18 when I took LSD Mm -hmm. and it was the most amazing thing. I've never talked about it with anyone. Yeah, Yeah, there's not many safe spaces to have these discussions. Right. And so uh, I gave a talk at the Horizons Conference back in 2014. Mm And that was when I met Andrew. And I said, you know, I'm leaving my job at Johns Hopkins. I'm settling in Connecticut where Mm -hmm. my husband and I are probably going to get this farm, which I can talk about a little bit because it's kind of a radical thing. Yeah. Cool. And let's circle back to it. I want to hear it. It's a radical thing. Cool. You know, and I said, I'm settling in Connecticut. I want to start some really cool stuff here in New York. But um, the things I'm envisioning require space. They require these like n- established networks. They require someone with you know seriousness and gravitas in the community mm-hmm. to help me get this going. And he said, "Well, I don't know about you, but he's like, I would love to do this, and I've got a center." So he and already then, had something. What was that? So that was the that? Center for Optimal Living. Center for Optimal. Oh, great. Yeah, and then Ingmar Gorman was also he was a student at the New School, finishing up his clinical PhD. Mm-hmm. And he had been working along with MAPS, uh, doing some work around MDMA research. Yeah, for those who don't know, that's a multidisciplinary association of uh, psychedelic stories? Studies, yeah. yeah. Studies, not stories. Studies. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the three of us just had what turned out to be, you know, in the timeline of history, this like really historic initial conversation where we're like, let's make something together. Mm-hmm. Let's create... Uh, basically something that can exist well before any of these drugs get legalized. Yeah. But something that can exist right now to help increase awareness, reduce risks, educate the public, and provide safe spaces for people to talk about psychedelics. Yeah. Um, and so during the process, that seed was planted, and then a year later we launched the Psychedelic Education and Continuing Care Program. And... Uh, So basically, the Center for Optimal Living predated the psychedelic program, but some of the seeds for the program were already kind of planted, Mm -hmm. and then it was this really kind of um, spontaneous realization that we all kind of had this same vision that we wanted to create together. And um, it's been really cool, because from the beginning, we had no idea if people... I mean, we... People who are into psychedelics usually are really into them, so we knew someone would show up. Absolutely. But we didn't really know... For example, if clinicians would care, mm-hmm. like, will, will the clinicians that Andrew and Jen know through their networks actually want to learn about psychedelic yeah. harm reduction? Or is mm-hmm. that still just like such a like weird... Or stigma so strong that, right. that, that yeah, they're going to stay with um, And it's like, so we've just been learning and I was always inspired by something that 
It actually comes from Alcoholics Anonymous, Mm -hmm. but I learned it through a friend of mine in the psychedelic community. Mm -hmm. It's called Attraction, Not Promotion. And so it's like we always wanted to offer something that was not, you know, it's not entertaining. Mm -hmm. It could be, but it's more about education, Mm -hmm. learning, participation, healing, and growth. And will people show up? Yeah. And so, you know, two years later, it's like we've had a lot of success. Mm -hmm. We've been running, I've been running these monthly integration groups. Yeah, I, I mean, I want to ask you about that. I yeah. Mean, I, I know the different offerings you have. You have public groups, um, individual psychotherapy group, psychotherapy evaluation and consultation. But yeah, monthly you have these groups. What, what occurs with them? What, um, so, you know, the groups... Anyone, can anyone go? Anyone can go. Right. They're open to the public. Okay. Um, you know, when I started the groups, I definitely had a little bit... So there's a funny thing going on in the psychedelic community around money. Okay. And I'll just be super transparent about it. And the, the point is, people seem to be willing to pay for drugs and willing to pay people who can provide the drug experience. Mm-hmm. But nobody really wants to pay for the kind of education and integration okay. that is, in my view, critical to for making the psychedelic experience actually helpful to sure. themselves and their community. Yeah. And so I think there's like a, we're in the process of growing up as a community. Mm-hmm. Out of this, like, adolescent, just, like, taking drugs, everything's cool, we're learning, like, we're getting all this credibility now with the science, and it's like, you know, now is the time that we have to become grown-ups, and that yeah, means absolutely. not necessarily getting to have the drug experience all the time, mm-hmm. but doing the hard work of, like, how do I integrate this into my daily life? Yeah. And so the reason that I bring this issue of money up is because at the very beginning, people were like, why can't you just offer these groups for free? You know, like, why can't, why can't anyone show up without a ticket? Yeah. And I finally realized that there's an interesting interaction where if someone pays a certain amount for something, they're more willing to fully participate in yeah, it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not just, you're not just a voyeur or a tourist. No, it's, it's funny, like, I just was working a book festival uh, this weekend, and it's one where you buy a ticket for, so everyone who goes is so zestful about books. And then, you know, I, I, we run a booth at the Brooklyn Book Festival, too. And it's outside, anyone can roll up, and it's amazing. You're just talking to people who don't care at all. And the same thing, you know? Yeah, so we've we've tried to figure out, you know, a price point. I mean, it's like 20 bucks, 30 bucks for students. It's like each monthly thing. Yeah, Yeah. it's like for students, it's only 10 or 15 dollars, depending on the venue. Mm And I found that that's something that seems reasonable for most people. Certainly, I've had people contact me saying, I can't afford 30 bucks. And so, case by case, you know, we kind of. Um, we kind of address it, but for the most part, it's open and available to almost everyone. And, um, it's kind of evolved over time. In the beginning, we used to have educational topics. Mm-hmm. So someone would give a presentation for half an hour, yep. like an so expert. So you knew what you were going for. There's a certain topic for each one. Right. And then we'd have a discussion around psychedelic experiences people had had related to that topic. Mm-hmm. And then, so that was when we were hosting the groups at the new school through the connection that, that Jen had mm-hmm. as the professor there. Mm-hmm. And then, um, kind of serendipitously, the Center for Optimal Living found their new home base in, at 370 Lexington, which is right by Grand Central. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. this amazing, with a group space. And so a year into the program, we finally started being able to offer the groups regularly through our own space. Mm-hmm. And once we moved there, it kind of... The, the students who were showing up more for like educational purposes yeah. or like the new school kind of ethos, which is more academic, mm-hmm. kind of dropped away. And it was also my evolution of understanding how people could be helped. The groups took on more of a kind of contemplative flavor. So I, I came up with a meditation 
that we do at the beginning of every group that allows people... Um, that is, is that the one where you just close your eyes and yeah. you call a psychedelic experience? So this is, it's called, yeah, I've, I've named this really cool. the raft meditation. Raft meditation. And it's, it's based in some of my understanding of Buddhist practices, mm-hmm. but for the most part, I had never heard anyone come up with a meditation to help people re-experience a psychedelic. Yeah, so is that the goal? It is to, to try to conjure up the feelings and thoughts and uh, of that psychedelic experience to bring it into your life. Is that the idea? Yeah. So w- the basically the, the evolution of this was early on, we'd have a topic, there'd be discussion. Sometimes the discussion would be based in direct experience, meaning like, this is what I felt, this is what I'm remembering, yeah. this is... These are the sensations. Mm-hmm. This is the direct insight I had. But oftentimes, because the initial discussion topic was intellectual, people would start taking it to this intellectual level and theorizing about experience mm-hmm. or lecturing oh. the others about what mushrooms do or yeah. what LSD does. And this is kind of my opinion. Yeah. I think that that kind of discussion definitely has a place, but real integration and embodying the psychedelic experience doesn't come from that intellectual level. Yeah. And I think a lot of people in the psychedelic community, perhaps at like an unusual um, disproportionate rate to the general public, mm-hmm. they're very smart, intellectually yeah. very smart, yeah. usually. Yeah. And so we all have a tendency to intellectualize these experiences yeah. that are not it's intellectual. Many yeah, absolutely. And so I was like, wait, I'm not a therapist. I am an intellectual, but I have this other experience. And maybe I can teach from that experience yeah. about embodying experience directly. And so that's kind of how the meditation developed was as a way of, at the beginning of the group, helping people get out of their heads yep. and into their bodies so that when they shared, yeah, experience, the yeah. sharing was based in the direct experience. Yeah. Um, and the cool thing is, even though it was motivated in this very like practical sense for me, like I want the groups to be fruitful and mm-hmm. beneficial, I learned all of this stuff about what that meditation does for people that I didn't predict. So like for some oh. people, it's like an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. They get to finally revisit. Yeah. Like this pivotal moment in their life. Yeah. yeah or, um, for whatever, way, right. Yeah. Well, so exactly. So some people have a great experience. Some people experience nothing. Yeah. It's very hard for them to, um, either use their imagination or be in their bodies. Yeah. Um, and then for some people I've gotten quite harsh feedback potentially correct feedback so i'm very open to that mm-hmm. that people who have trauma or who for whom being in their bodies is very scary yeah. that even what seems like a very simple meditation at the beginning of a group mm-hmm. is just like really triggering Sense. and they yeah. are like well that's not what i came for yeah, I you know see how also you know in people and i want to ask you different reasons why people that you've noticed do come to the group but some of them might have come because they had a traumatic experience mm-hmm. on psychedelics or, or you know something occurred that they're tapping into right away and that could be de- very difficult for them but so what what are reasons you're seeing that people would come to this this group I mm-hmm. mean, just um in general you know i think that that i'm trying to think of the percentages i would yeah. say that there's probably a small percentage of people who kind of stop in occasionally maybe like once or twice a year yeah. And usually for those people, their experiences are great. They have these great experiences or kind of just these lovely experiences. They come, they learn a lot from what other people share. They share their little piece, but it's not, they don't have like a big healing story to tell or like a difficult story to tell. It's more just like 
this is an enjoyable thing I do, and it's so nice to be able to talk about it with people who get it. Yeah. And the groups are confidential, so that's different. You know, oh, you can yeah. speak in front of strangers, but mm-hmm. there's this kinship and understanding yeah, that... Yeah, community there, too. Yeah. Um, I would say half of the people who are, are in a pretty difficult place in their oh, life. Oh, really? Okay. And within that difficult space, and difficult, I mean, usually it's challenging feelings like depression, mm-hmm. anxiety... Um, sense of lack of purpose yeah. it could be it could be classic PTSD yeah. although it's usually um, I don't know how many people actually have a diagnosis of PTSD okay. it's kind of that more amorphous trauma that a lot of people experience as kids yeah, or just I mean now I think with a lot of the attention to you know sexual assault mm-hmm. and abuse it's like these are very common experiences Absolutely. and so finally people are talking about them and what I've seen is kind of two general paths. Some people are using psychedelics in a very intentional way with great shamans or great underground therapists mm-hmm. and they're benefiting and they're healing and they're yeah. growing. Um, I would like to say that that's most of the people and it's not. I think that's unusual that okay. psychedelics are actually working in an, in that kind of non, I mean, it's unregulated right now yeah. and it's a total like free for all. Mm-hmm. I think it's unusual for people to have found that really great healing relationship either with a shaman yeah. or yeah. an underground therapist. Yeah, it's and not so, like it's at their fingertips. These people have to seek it out. No, and, and so the, the other group of people are, person, yeah. you know, the people that I feel a lot of um, kind of responsibility, um, compassion for are the people who are really struggling, have tried a lot of psychedelics that haven't helped, okay. or really want to try psychedelics but are too scared to get over the risks that are involved to like find an underground therapist, uh-huh. get the drug, you know, find a shaman. And they've heard all these horror stories. Yeah, so to say whether the risks are real or not. I mean, the, the, the stigmas involved in it are so real. Do you take that upon yourself as part of this whole thing to kind of, you know, through this education to kind of get rid of some of these misunderstandings, change the tide of this, the stigma? Is that, is that Yeah, definitely. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Part of it is just kind of normalizing yeah, I was gonna the, the talking about psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Like, it's normal to talk about these experiences. Yeah. Um, that's something that I learned, actually, at Hopkins. And Roland Griffiths, my mentor there, mm-hmm. talks about that these experiences are biologically normal. It's normal for humans to seek these out. Mm-hmm. It's normal for people to have mystical experiences. They're actually not that rare. Yeah. So if you ask Americans in like general survey, you know, the surveys that they give nationally, that mm-hmm. there are tons of different questions. It's something like 30 to 40% of people have had a mystical experience. Oh, wow. Not, I, I, I wouldn't have thought of Not necessarily due to drug like, use, yeah, but it could be spontaneous. Yeah. It could be through religion. And mm-hmm. so it's not like this tiny proportion of the population. And so part of it is also normalizing talking about spirituality in a context that's not... Yeah, so people not making people feel like a freak for having a regular life experience. Right. Yeah. Um, And I'm trying... I've tried a couple times. It's You know, it's interesting. As soon as you have psychedelic in the title, people show up. Yep. And so part of my approach with introducing mindfulness and other techniques is it's like stealth... uh, It's like stealth training in things that aren't psychedelic yeah. so it's like people are kind of drawn in because they've had psychedelic experiences they see that in the title but then once they arrive yeah. you're like okay now i'm gonna help you learn how to be in your body while sober yeah, yeah. and have or these like experiences when, when, um, 
uh, what is it, holotropic breathing mm -hmm. be, be in that realm too? Because that, that's something you guys do over there, right? Well, that, but this is what I was going to say. Yeah, it's please. actually been harder to get people to show up to workshops that don't have psychedelic yeah. in the title. <laughs> and so I've kind of learned the hard way that it's like if you try to sell mindfulness yeah. to psychedelic users, they won't, it's like much harder to get them to show up. It's kind of wild. But if you are selling a psychedelic integration group yeah. to people and then teaching them mindfulness them once there, they show they, up, they will, people are open to yeah. it. Oh, cool. And I'm sure some people it's are like. Come upon that understanding, though. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I'm like revealing all my secrets here. Now people will know. Yeah. But no, there is there is some thought that goes into that. We we did actually the breath work was very the breath work sold I'm out immediately. That, people are very into breath work. Yeah. Um, you can really get to a place, can't you? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny. Um, I'll share about my breath work experience just Please. very briefly. But I'll, I'm going to be a study therapist on the upcoming phase three trial for M MDMA for oh, well. PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, part they, of, they've made some breakthroughs over there at maps and they're getting some, you know, right. So there's going to be, able to do some of these. there are going to be two sites in New York oh, wow. so and, cool. um, we're all like super excited. We're going to start recruitment any day now. So cool. Um, there, there are 18,000 people who have signed up at maps.org to be notified when recruitment starts. 18,000. And, wow. you know, only like, a f you know, several hundred people will yeah. be allowed to actually participate. Mm -hmm. So it shows the need, the, the need is there. the tool being able to help. Too. Right. Yeah. Um, we're trying to get it. But so as part of, in order to be a therapist on the MDMA study, they couldn't require people to have psychedelic experiences. Although there actually is an option, there are they uh, maps got an approved research protocol to allow therapists to undergo MDMA therapy so that they learn what it's like from the other side. Okay. And okay. so that's that's oh, offered cool. to us therapists. It's not yeah. required, you know. I think they're very careful about. It would be difficult to hire someone for a job and then say you need to go take this drug Absolutely. in order to get yeah. the job. Yeah. So we're not quite there yet, but yeah. they do require breath work. Okay. So you have to go and participate in a week long breath work. Okay. And it was so funny. It's like, I don't mean to at all diminish breath work, yeah. but it was really, <laughs> it was noticeable that among the group of people who were there, who were there all of the psychedelic this. researchers yeah. <laughs> were kind of like, I'm here because I have to be. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the, like the, the, the facilitators are so experienced that they're not, they don't take it personally at sure, all. They're sure, just they like, get. we're just happy you're here. Yep. And what I would say about breath work was it was like very... It was very tame and subtle mm -hmm. for me compared okay. to either past psychedelic experiences yeah. or Zen retreats I'd been okay. on. But there were a lot of similarities. And then actually what was very powerful and cathartic was something no one really talks about explicitly, but in breath work, they do body work too. I was going to ask you, I know you said body-based work is something. So basically there's so this know. amazingly evocative music track that's playing the whole time. Okay. You're blindfolded. You're very much... In your own experience, you've kind of forgotten about the other people in the room. You have someone right next to you watching you, making sure you're okay. Mm -hmm. And then at different points, someone, um, a very experienced facilitator will come up and say, like, are you feeling anything in your body that I can help you with? And what that means is, and like, I didn't quite understand how this works, but like, I was having a lot of pain in my face. And I was kind of like touching my own face and like trying to... During this. The, during the, the during breath the, work. Okay, wow. And it was actually, I had had a kind of very mild and lovely transcendent experience from the music, yeah. but nothing out of the ordinary physiologically from the breath work. Mm -hmm. And then I was like two hours in and I was kind of like, I think I'm done. Yeah. And then they said, why don't you try some body work? And I said, sure. And so what they ended up doing is like they, if there was pain, and I don't know, I don't know if this actually has like a basis in some other kind of practice of healing, mm -hmm. but it. 
It seemed like the approach was if there's a painful part, we're going to push against that pain and you're going to push back and that's going to somehow like release the emotion or the memory that's behind the pain. So I really don't know if this theory has any legs, but I experienced it to be extremely cathartic. And um, as kind of a side note, I wish I hadn't known this before I did the breath work. So Stan Groff, who developed breath work Mm -hmm. with his wife, Christina, they have a very strong belief that the pain and emotions and all the stuff you experience later in life is was kind of like um, modeled after your birth experience. Oh, wow. And so the process of being born, depending on how that went for you, mm-hmm. will continue to show up in all these different ways in your life. And so as an adult, you it's think that your that, issues that, are like depression or yeah, anxiety or like... something just at the... But if you look all the way back... That's nuts. Yeah. All the way back to the birth, that there are... There are patterns of how you were born that yeah. then per- perpetuate. Wow. And so I actually, through the body work, because all of it was like around my head, yeah. I felt like I was really rebirthing myself against their, their hands yeah. pushing against my head. And I later told the facilitator, I said, you know, it could be a convenient coincidence, yeah. but I already knew that my birth was a little difficult yeah. and everything was going fine and then it stopped and I had to be literally yanked out. Oh, wow. And that I kind of felt that again, that it's like I would have preferred, in the breathwork space, I would have preferred to just kind of stay in that space of like transcendent, yeah. comfy, womb bliss. space. Yeah. But instead you were offered... But instead, it, and it was so funny too because it like the pattern was there too. Like, I think I'm done. Yeah. Like, I don't actually have to do the hard part, all right? All go back to your birth. Yes. Yeah. yeah, then all of a sudden. And so I told the facilitator, I was like... That is crazy. It's like I, I knew too much. I wish yeah. I had had the experience fresh. Okay, yeah, you knew that going in. <laughs> maybe, maybe something, you know, yeah. consciously pushed that forward or even, you know, um, Yeah. But, you know, back to the psilocybin thing, I think we see that with psilocybin too, is that intention matters so much. Yeah. Yeah. And so at Hopkins, we did everything we could to pull people into that space of the possibility of a mystical transcendent experience. And that's, I think that that's a big reason why people have such strong mystical experiences in our studies. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, it is the format. And I think if you wanted to give people a different type of experience on psilocybin, Mm -hmm. you could push it in that different direction. I don't think you could fully take away the spiritual component, like in the other direction, you couldn't just like make it, a super ordinary experience. Yeah, yeah. But for sure, we were, for a lot of reasons, creating the conditions so that if the mystical experience could happen, it had all of the possibility of happening. Okay. And some of the reasons for that, going way back, is that most of the healing potential of psychedelics have been linked to the mystical experience, not to dose. Okay. So you need a certain dose in your system to get yeah. to the point where you could have a Would mystical. Would that be like a breakthrough amount of dose? I know I've heard Terrence McKenna say, what, like five grams or so something? So five grams is what Terrence McKenna was calling a heroic or breakthrough dose okay. was about the high dose that we gave people as well in okay. Hopkins. And what we kind of found is that you can back that off a little bit. Okay. And for people yeah, who've never cents. had experience with psychedelics, that moderately high dose is usually enough. Okay. For most people to have the mystical experience and also not have the really bad trip, disorientation, dissociation, fear stuff kick in. Um, But, you know, I've talked to other people who are more experienced with altered states Mm -hmm. and that five gram level, whatever that equivalent is, I think it's too, I think it's too low for a lot of people. And so I almost feel like Terrence did a disservice by making that seem heroic because it's like, yeah, some people, yeah, Yeah. some people I've heard people take, I mean, 
there's one extreme case, but I'll leave that guy out. Yep. There's, I mean, people say, take eight, nine, ten grams, mm-hmm. and it's not, you know, it's not like twice a hero's dose. For them, that's the dose that they need. That's the fuel that they need. Yeah. Yeah. Some people need, need much less. Yeah. So if they were to take five grams out of the gate, it would just be way too much. Is it a challenge finding out exactly what people would need? I mean, people are so different. It is challenging. I mean, I remember, you know, working at Hopkins, I think some of the people who had the easiest time were people who were already so spiritually open that they had no fear going into it. They weren't, they didn't have real expectations. Yeah. They were just kind of like, I'm so open to whatever just this has to teach it, me. Just let it, yeah, let it, um, let it work. Some of the universally, I don't know if this was always true. In my experience, the volunteers that I saw go through the study who had the toughest time mm-hmm. were usually young men okay. who either had really rigid beliefs about themselves or the world mm-hmm. that like the psilocybin in their system kind of challenged those reality fighting, structures. Fighting against it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, or, I mean, there was also the oh, factor of these I see were... what you're saying. They were having a tough time with kind of challenging... The rigid views they had that was brought on by the, the, the which I think speaks yeah. it speaks volumes because these guys had to be already so open to, to do the study to, to begin with, yeah. and even for those people, they very quickly found out that they were living in a very rigidly constructed view of yep. how the world works. Huh. Um, that you know, a couple guys in particular, I saw them go into a space that was. I think that like with a certain dose, you can see people either really dissolve into that like no boundary, mm-hmm. like blissful unity yep. experience or feel like that that's um, something they have to fight against or dissociate from. And so a couple of people I definitely saw go into this space that was more like they weren't in their body, but they were very confused. Yeah. And like, so it's like I was, I wish we had a good test of like how strong someone's ego will hold yeah. on. <laughs> Right. You know, and yeah. not not that it's a bad or good thing, sure. because but some people but it is crucial to the experience, to right? Way to, to to get past that ego, yeah. Um, and you know, I still don't know what that critical variable is. You know, mm-hmm. these people we had worked with them for months ahead of time; they yeah. trusted us. Oh well, okay. I didn't um, know there's a, a whole process like that. Let me ask more about that, just kind of technically speaking. So you're working with them over time. Mm-hmm. You, you know, all these studies come come up, whether it's at Hopkins or what, 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 that you were at Hopkins. I was at Johns Hopkins, Johns yeah. Ho- okay, that's what, to take a little step back, how did you kind of get into this? Like, <laughs> I mean, like, I, you know, I feel like I should have asked that sooner, but like, you know, kind of what's your, um, what's your background a little bit? I, I think our listeners want to know that. A yeah, so... Um, it's hard to know where to start. I actually, I think I had a pretty active, you know, imagination. I was into like sci-fi and fantasy books yeah. and stuff from a pretty young yeah, age. Um, you know, at the age of 10, I was reading like full on like adult, you know, mm-hmm. sci-fi fantasy books. So yeah. it's like, I think I was really into these ideas. Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of time in the woods, a mm-hmm. lot of time by myself. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, you know, I was a pretty normal, like very serious student into sports. Like all of it was a pretty normal yeah you know, privileged American upbringing, um, great education, you know, and all of that. And then when I went to college, it's kind of like the doors blew open on all of the different ways I could like alter my consciousness and for good and for bad, you know, a lot of it was through alcohol, Mm -hmm. which 
interestingly enough, it was the psychedelic training throughout my life that helped the alcohol piece, like, finally recede into the background. Oh, great. So it, like, was very dominant for a while, like it is for a lot of people in a recreational way. But it's at the, accessible. Right, yeah. and a lot of the culture at colleges yeah. around that. Yeah. But at the same time, um, there was probably like 10% of my college that was into other drugs. Mm-hmm. And it was mostly MDMA. So this was in you know the early what 2000s. College? Dartmouth College, okay, yeah, New, yeah, Hampshire. New Hampshire. Yeah. And so people, we would drive up to Montreal. Mm-hmm. And in Montreal, the rave scene was still like thriving, yeah. even though it was like it had died out in the UK yeah. and the United States, yeah. but it was still yeah. thriving. It's a great city. Um, for better or for worse, like the clubs actually, they had people who were selling MDMA right really? that was like, not like regulated, yeah. but it was kind of like, were we're trying to make this the like least harmful possible context. Yeah. I don't know how they were getting around it legally, <laughs> but it was just, it was a, I don't want to say that it was a, a totally safe alternative. I still think it had risks yeah, the way sure. we were doing it, yeah. but it was certainly better than alcohol in a yeah, lot of ways. Yeah. And so there was that kind of experimentation, certainly mushrooms, mm-hmm. but nothing really else. So I think I was kind of insulated from some of the more like tragic outcomes that you see with yeah. like tons of acid yeah. and acid mixed with other drugs yeah. like cocaine and stuff. Oh, it was just really yeah. the MDMA mushroom kind of scene mm-hmm. sprinkled throughout the like binge drinking yeah, thing. Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. Um, and so I've actually become more, I'm being very like clear about this because I think a lot of scientists and people who've become established in the psychedelic research community mm-hmm. aren't transparent about their own beginnings. Yeah. And I, I think it does a disservice because it, it basically continues the stigma of saying like... Exactly. They're ashamed of something. Right. Instead of just looking as a, a, as a normal transgression of life, progression of life. Right. Yeah. And so I want to be really transparent about that, that I, I don't... That. Yeah. Without those personal experiences, I don't know why I would have been interested. Yep. In these yeah, drugs. I'm glad I asked that. I'm um, curious. I'm at the so same time, that. you know, I did have a very strong academic yeah. curiosity. Yeah, you merged the bo- both. I mean, what did, what did you end up studying that led you to? So I ended up studying objects. psychology and neuroscience. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think in a different, you know, if you imagine like a branching path, there was a time when I was kind of flirting with anthropology and religion mm-hmm. or religious studies, yeah. and. It, as it turned out, I realized that the like the way to actually tweak the experience was more through this experimental method through psychology and neuroscience yeah. rather than this kind of field study approach with anthropology or religion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I got I learned about ayahuasca through a religion uh, class, oh, an really? anthropology of religion class. Wow, te- uh, that's cool. Um, and learning about those kind of rites of passage mm-hmm. and, and shamanism. And then I kind of went the whole neuroscience psychology route through my PhD and kind of leaving out a lot of interesting details, but wound yeah. up at UC Davis where they were starting a really intensive study of meditation training. So basically the Shamata project, as it was known, Shamata is a, a very simple form of Tibetan uh, breathing meditation. Um, that was the most psychedelic thing happening at the time. And so I was like, I'm clearly going to do the most the closest thing to what I really want to do, but always holding out for like maybe one day. Maybe something's going to happen, yeah. And then Roland's paper was published in 2006 in the middle of my grad school, and I was like, that's where I'm going. Like all of a sudden the light turned on, you know? Yeah. Um, And so I consider myself like extremely lucky, but also, I mean, for people who have this kind of magical belief system, Mm -hmm. I don't think it was coincidence. Yeah. That like right at the same time that I was at, 
Dartmouth experimenting with these drugs and like in like a weirdly like I was obsessed with psychedelics yeah. not like that I did them all the time but I was just like this there's something you, here yeah, I mean you were on to the fact that these I mean I'm thinking you were on to the fact that these could be helpful to people in a lot of different ways and also just like what is it what does it mean that you can give someone a chemical yeah. and it completely changes reality yeah. yeah and it's like when I would talk about it with people like either people got it or they didn't yeah and I think even now, like when I say that to like general audiences, I'm like, do you understand do, what do, I'm do, saying? Do, like, do, do you understand this power? Like yeah. you eat food and drink coffee and yeah. you do all these things and your consciousness stays mostly the same. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is it about this class of chemicals that you take it and everything changes? Changes, yeah. and changes? So, and um, so at the same time that I was at Dartmouth, they were starting the studies at Hopkins, unbeknownst to me. And so, you know... I don't know. I I prefer like this kind of more magical, mythical view of human experience, sure. and it's like I th- I have this sense that like we were connected in a way at that time that just wasn't clear. Yeah. And so when I finally found my way to Baltimore, you know, even though we were my husband and I were living in California, it was lovely out there. Like we could have stayed and been very happy, yeah. and instead we moved to Baltimore yeah. of all places, <laughs> right. and like. Um, and the hot, you know, the environment at Hopkins was very stressful, but I was like, this is my calling. This is, this is yeah. what I have to do. Yeah. The passion um, and so, yeah. yeah. So, so you're doing the studies there. Now we can get, you know, thank you for that. Um, I'm always, I'm always very curious about this. It's every time these studies are brought up, it's, it's talked about controlled environments. It's really intense to think about some of these mystical experiences happening in, in what's termed as controlled environments. What, what is the controlled environment? that you, you're having these studies in? What? So at Hopkins, it's a it's kind of the, the Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit, BPRU, mm-hmm. is the part of the psychiatry department where they do drug studies. And it was created, it's kind of like a, a convoluted history, but basically even within psychiatry, which itself is kind of ostracized from the medical community in a way. It's like you become a psychiatrist if you can't hack it as like yeah. another medical. It's like stupid. Is that really the take? Yes, it yeah. is. So there's such a stigma in the medical community against subjective experience and the mind that like psychiatrists, even though psychiatrists end up being That's vilified, bullshit. are actually holding the torch for this part of uh, medicine yeah. that is itself kind of like pushed to the side. So within psychiatry, <laughs> it's like studying drug abuse is like the the thing that's like pushed to the side of psychiatry because it is very, it's a complicated thing. It's like no one understands what addiction is. Barely anyone can treat it. And yet we're constantly seeing patients come in who need help around drugs. And so this whole building is dedicated to studying drugs of abuse. And then Roland started doing his studies with psilocybin in that building. And then so psilocybin within that building became the thing that's like no one understood. Yeah. And it was weird. Yeah. And it's like it was the only drug that we were studying that was helping people. You know, it's like methadone was the only other one. Yeah, yeah. But really the focus was on how are these drugs bad, all drugs. Yeah. And the psilocybin studies were like how can they help people. Yeah. And so it was like a really funny um, – so it was like all these like lab rooms – And offices, and at the center of the building, literally the center of the building was this tiny little living room that they had created to be like a sanctuary for the psilocybin work. And so all the other drug studies were happening in like pretty bland rooms. It was all about like take the drug, have the experience, report about what happens. 
And in this case, it was thing. like... Well, there's an awakening happening. In yeah, so like at the center of this building, in this like random old building in West Baltimore, yeah. there was this like tiny little living room with art on the walls and Buddha statues and carpet and like, you know, couch. <laughs> That's and awesome. So it was like yeah. this tiny little like beating heart, you know, sanctuary mm-hmm. space in the middle of like a pretty desolate landscape. Yeah. Um, and so the controlled environment is physical. It's controlled in that they don't go outside. There's no windows. There's no social interaction. Mm-hmm. So you have two guides with you from the beginning of your time in the study all the way through the end. Okay. And those two people are with you all day long in the session room. What's the length of, of these studies? Uh, so typically about six months Okay. from screening all the way through mm-hmm. completion. Um, some of the early studies did follow-ups at like a year. Okay. Um, but so you're you're you become like part of this family mm-hmm. while you're a participant, yeah. and there's a very deep connection that's created. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit similar to like midwives or doulas with yeah. the birth process, yeah. and I'm sure it's it could be similar for par- people who have a very intentional death experience. Mm-hmm. You know, these strangers come into your life, and all of a sudden they're there for the most intimate moments. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, um, there's a level of trust that's that's very profound. Yeah. Uh, but the other cool thing about, I mean, so people often ask me, like, so I'm going to, they'll say, like, I'm going to, you know, get the psilocybin mushrooms myself. I've got this underground therapist. I'm going to listen to the Hopkins soundtrack. I'm going to do everything you guys did. And I was like, don't be surprised if it doesn't work. And I think people have this idea that, like, you can just take the parts of the, the, the set and setting that we created and mimic it, and you'll get the 60 to 70% chance of having a mystical experience. Yeah. And you'll get all the other benefits that we reported. Yeah. But I think that there was something else going on there, which is that there was literally no fear of terrible outcomes. So, like, even though most of us wouldn't prefer to have an experience in, like, a lockdown yeah. hospital. It, t- it does take the risk out of it. Exactly, it take, yeah. because you can completely surrender yep. and know that if I have a heart attack randomly today, I, I have help. Yeah. these doctors are right here, yeah. the ER is right across yeah. the street. Um, if, yeah, you know, if you don't have to, I don't have to answer a phone call yeah, from someone saying, like, your child is sick at school, definitely. so you have to, like, go, you know, pick them up or... Some random... This world event is not going to happen to you in there. Right. You're running somebody. And so it's like, yeah. it's a controlled environment, but it's also like, that's why I keep this, the term like sanctuary, like yeah. protected space. Yeah. It was a sacred space for people where like literally the whole rest of the world was gone yeah. and it was just them and their experience for that sounds day. Nice. Yeah. No, it's lovely. Nice. Um, and so I find myself defending the Hopkins model a lot because people don't, I think, they devalue it or like, oh, I wouldn't want to have that experience. Wouldn't want to have it, yeah. yeah and I, I, I sometimes am <laughs> fascinated by it. I mean, I think of my experiences and they're far from that type of situation. Right. Know? So, um, that's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I do think, I mean, I think my vision for the future is like something like the Hopkins model, but including nature. Yeah. So if there's a way to safely allow people to be outdoors yeah. in nature with trees and plants that and sounds, flowers and like real animals and birds, yeah. Yeah. I think we could only increase the chance of having the mystical Basically, experience yeah, absolutely. and then potentially increase the chance of that mystical experience having an, a much larger impact. Yeah. So a good friend of mine talks about how most of the, who himself is a shaman, mm-hmm. he talks about how most of the current thrust of understanding psychedelics now is focused on the individual. Okay. What does it do for me? Yeah. What is my experience? Yeah. And how do I feel later? 
But he said, there's so many other levels. Like, what does it do for your community? Yeah, I was going to say, that it doesn't only, only have to be inward. Right. You know, because I mean, because one of the things it does when it breaks down ego and creates empathy and all that, it does, it connect, can connect you to other people. And so, yes. Right. So like, what are, thing. what are the gifts you bring back to your community? Yeah. And then what's your relationship with nature afterward? Yeah. And it's hard to actually, if you didn't have trees in your experience while it was happening, it's yeah. hard to all of a sudden feel kinship with trees afterward you yeah, might sure, you sure. might just get lucky yeah, and be yeah, like yeah, yeah. whoa yeah but it's not but you know the like you know the single red rose in the room is not going to cut it it's not a forest yeah, yeah. it's not a it's it's a cultivated human curated yeah. version of nature yeah. it's not the real thing There's something to the sounds and senses of, of true nature that is deeply affecting and, yeah and or even like if you think about going down to the jungle like no one talks about it, but I was like, what about the sound of all the insects? Yeah. That's got to be the biggest well, they, sensory experience, you know? It's like, overwhelming. It's like you're just this little human and the whole jungle is full of, of other shit. bugs. Yeah. <laughs> you just feel them all around. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, you mentioned real quick the, uh, the experience, patients experience their own death. I know in your TED Talk, which was fabulous, by the way, I love it. I've watched it multiple times now. Um, and you were talking about kind of experience your own death and, and how patients kind of experience their own death during these trials. Can you speak on that some? I, I, I've just never had anything like that. And, you know, that sounds like kind of like uh, whatever caterpillar shedding its skin and being able to move on. Yeah. But I'm not quite sure what you meant by that. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure at the time when I was seeing it. So basically when I started seeing people going through this, this experience... Um, we don't necessarily, depending on how, um, uh, I guess open to sharing someone is Mm -hmm. during the experience, we're not pushing them to share, but we're checking in with them regularly throughout the day. Some people would be completely silent all day long and then report that it was this like very sacred divine encounter Mm -hmm. and they would basically meet all of the criteria for a full like mystical experience. And so I saw that over and over and it became clear, like, you know, the papers are reporting what's actually happening. This is happening, like, every day for people. Mm-hmm. Like, for the most part, people are having a spiritual experience. But within my volunteers, I was also seeing a lot of what looked like death experiences. And so sometimes that took the form of this one person in particular that I have a very vivid memory of working with. When he felt like he, um, at some point in the session, it was like everything was painful, scary, terrible, all of the worst things he could imagine and then he said, I felt like I died, but it was like, it was not blissful. It was like nothing. There was no more beauty. There was no more meaning. There was no more of any of the things. It's a dark place. And um, my instinct was to help him just stay with that experience. That's also my training, mm-hmm. is not to judge the good or bad quality of this experience, but just to help the person stay with it no matter what. Um, and so really supporting him through that, um, basically... It was a very redemptive experience because a week later, you know, weeks later, every day that went by, he felt more and more empowered. Mm-hmm. Like as as he got distance from oh, that from terrible that experience, yeah. he was like, Finding "Wait, strength. I just survived my worst fears. I, I just survived that. death. Yeah. I just survived what I could imagine hell is. Yeah. You know, the lack of beauty, the lack of meaning. And so, it could have it looked like that sometimes. Um, other times, okay. people usually people would would talk about it afterward. Mm -hmm. Like one guy, another guy I remember kind of, he said, you know, at some point it it felt like I died, but it wasn't a big deal. That's pretty cool. And so it was almost like, 
it was almost like an after the fact thing. Like looking back, you'd be yeah. like, wait, did I, did, did I, I die? <laughs> like what happened? Yeah, yeah. But I'm alive. Yeah. So what, ha- like what part died? Yeah. Um, and then I actually yeah. gained a lot of context for understanding. Um, and I actually do just say death. I don't say ego death because when you think yeah, about ego death, that. yeah. it sounds like it's not going to feel like real death, yeah. but it really there's, feels there's, like, there's, it really yeah. feels like you're going to die. Yeah. And the only other people who were talking about it that way were the Zen Buddhists. Mm-hmm. And so Joan Halifax was actually married to Stan Groff. So mm-hmm. they were doing the psychedelic research with LSD back in the day. Then Joan ended up going her own direction, having lots of experiences with shamanic psychedelic healing mm-hmm. and becoming a Zen abbot, Zen, yeah. you know, Roshi. Yeah. And when I showed up at her retreat center, it was like, you're here to die. Like, that's the whole point yeah. of these week retreats. And she had like a joke. She said, someone asked her like, what's the point of Zen? She's like, cross your legs and hope to die. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wait, these guys are talking about death too. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. And then the more I started to look, I was like, these mystical traditions are the ones talking about dying before dying. Yeah. And there's something here that maybe those of us on the one side of the veil mm-hmm. think that the only death that we're facing is physical death. Physical death yeah. And the people on the other side of that veil are talking about something completely mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. where it's like, birth and death are not these like linear points yep. in a lifetime yeah. that really there are all these moments of death and birth. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of changed my lens on what I was seeing with psilocybin and even more so since I've left Hopkins, I, I want to start changing the language to like emphasize the birth part mm-hmm. because it's like, no one really wants to die, but everyone wants to be reborn. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was surprised when you said you showed up at that Zen retreat. Instead of saying you're going to be reborn, they'd go straight to the dark. Right. We're here to die. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, if you you know if you tell someone, oh, this is this amazing birth process. Yeah, you're not setting them up for the for. No. You know, so if then they have a bad experience. Yeah. They think there's something wrong. Exactly. It's like you didn't tell me it would feel like yeah, this. Yeah. So it's kind of better to err on the it side of like. A lot, yeah. a lot of ayahuasca stories you hear. People go down there and face some pretty tough things and it's, it's it's more of a challenging rigorous experience at times but uh you know there's so much good that can come out of it too so. yeah and so i mean you know the death experiences certainly don't happen at the rate of the mystical experiences so yeah. basically we were seeing about 60 to 70 percent of people having mystical still, experiences yeah. and only 30 percent having these death so experiences yeah. but um and then you know not everyone who died felt reborn and people who felt reborn didn't necessarily have to die. So I don't think it's okay. like, you know, I think there's this kind of collection of, um, you can talk about it also in other terms. So Joseph Campbell talks about the hero's journey yeah. and rites of passage. Yeah. And so when the hero begins his quest or her quest, she is never going to come back in the same form that she left. Yeah. And so that initiation requires something to die in order for the person to come back as a hero yeah. and no longer who they who they were. Mm-hmm. And he also, I mean, this isn't an original idea, but he pointed out the fact that typically in cultures that have rites of passage to mark um, progress through life, you, you die to that old self so that you can be reborn as an adult in a society or an elder. And for the most part, people aren't like nostalgically reminding you of the person you used to be because... Yeah. That person's dead, mm-hmm. and it actually doesn't help the tribe to keep living in the past, yeah. you know, ideas of you. And I think what's kind of missing in our culture is that we don't have those rites of passage yeah. to mark mm-hmm. the death and rebirth at different stages. Yeah. And so you end up with, like, people who are chronologically adults who are still acting like children yeah. because 
they have that they still think that that child is alive in them yeah. and it is at some level but it's like you're a grown up now and so we don't allow people to like really let go of that like you yeah. said shedding that skin yeah. and so i think maybe psychedelics are coming back in such force because people are like craving that sense of starting over yeah like i could just work on my past forever or i could yeah. just be done with it well i mean and, also i mean the you know and you did talk about this in your ted talk a whole lot which i just absolutely loved is People don't change that much, it seems, um, you know, when they reach a certain point in their adulthood. Um, and that's a shame in a lot of ways. And a lot of, like, you know, there's, there's um, monotony in that. You're not trying new things. But, I mean, with psychedelics and used as a tool, it, it can open your mind. And I think you wrote, uh, you know, people who have this openness to experience, you know, after um, whether having a mystical experience or whatnot, um, were finding themselves openness to experience, immersing themselves in art and music more, mm-hmm. have an active imagination, um, and openness is correlated with an abstract problem solving, and, and you know, and, and you were noticing that in, in patients, and I think that's something so special with the whole psychedelics making a comeback. People are realizing that, uh, you know, you, you can still grow uh, mentally in, in, in a lot of different ways through that. Yeah, there's so much, I mean, the openness piece... It's bittersweet for me because it was kind of my my sense of so the finding basically was that uh, we I combined data across these two original studies that mm-hmm. Roland and his colleagues had completed at Hopkins and found that there was this small but reliable increase in this one personality domain and these measures are typically not supposed to change over very short periods of time. Mm-hmm. There's always been a, um, a theoretical understanding that they could change fairly dramatically if someone had a big life event, but usually it's hard yeah. to study before and after a big life event sure. that's unpredictable. Yeah. Um, since the paper I published in 2011, there's actually been a shift in the personality research uh, community where they're starting to talk more about how much personality changes. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is just kind of the consensus around like does personality not change or is it stable or does it change now there's just more emphasis on well maybe it does change and it's always fluctuating a little bit but fluctuating around like an average but the exciting thing about open i mean it'd be one thing you know if people became i don't know more conscientious they became harder workers okay that's kind of cool there are applications for that Mm -hmm. you became more extroverted you know applications for that less neurotic for sure that's health related. But openness is kind of like a funny thing because like being high or low in openness doesn't really, it does, it's not like obviously good or bad to be high or low in openness. But depending on how you view it and like what you're saying, as people age, if they become more and more rigid and that rigidness is not leading to happiness, uh-huh. then if there is a way to increase openness and help people not be so rigidly contained yeah. in their view of life, then maybe there is a way to increase well-being and happiness. Um, You know, something that my Zen teacher said to me, so I did a retreat in May, and um, when I came back from the retreat, I felt very different in a lot of ways than how I was before the retreat. Mm -hmm. And my my two-year-old daughter was kind of like weirded out by that. You know, and it was like we had this very, we still have a very incredibly close bond, but it was almost like, who is mom now? Like really? something happened to mom. She sensed the change. Absolutely. And I was, you know, kind of giving my Zen teacher this feedback. And I said, it's tough because 
I think that the process of Zen makes you less attached to certain people and more attached to like everyone. Okay. So you like care more about everybody and a little bit less about specific people. And I said, you know, for my daughter, that matters because it's like she wants all of it. All that love, absolutely. (laughs) So any little bit that's not going to her. Enough of the sharing, mom. And well, and he said that's one way to see it. He said the other thing is that's important is that she is now learning that it's normal for people she loves to change. Oh. And that that's fine. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that is that's actually, awesome. like, I just yes. totally took that part for granted. Yep. I was trying to value what the change was. Yeah. And he said, no, the fact that you went away yep. and came back a different person yeah. normalizes this thing that we all have so much fear about. They, they, like, you know, their parents are going to change and go through things. <laughs> and they're, you know, that's not something I'm sure they just think of it as this, this rock that's going to be there in one way. Right. That's and crazy. instead it's like, oh, this rock is constantly morphing yeah. and it's still a rock. And like it's still, still, and that's okay. And you know, I think going to like various extremes, like when a parent gets really sick or mm-hmm. dies, most kids like everything is broken open in their world. Yeah, okay. But potentially there is a way to inoculate children and whole communities against these like catastrophes by saying like, this is just one version of the changes that yeah. you've seen over your whole life. And everything is much more fluid. You know, it's not like you can permanently rely on this. You can, yeah. this is always going to be this way. And on top of that, he said, when she is forced to change in her life, she will have less fear about it mm-hmm. because she's now seen this model that it's like, this is normal. People aren't like desperately clutching to this particular version of themselves, yeah. that they're willing, they're open to change. And so my understanding of what that increase in openness allows is this, um, is a little bit less fear and a little mm-hmm. bit more just like comfort with like, whoa, the world is always changing. Yeah. You know, I yeah. can't rely on any of it. Yeah. And like instead of that it's being really scary, has to, has to face. Yeah. it can be, it in, can be like, enlightening. Yeah, yeah, and joyful. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's kind of how I'm seeing openness now. And um, there's been some new research actually that also has linked psychedelic use, openness, and things like relating to nature, caring more about nature, yeah. ecological, you know, yeah. concern for the environment. Yeah. Um, more controversial. It's also linked to being more liberal and more anti-authoritarian. Yeah. And so I think yeah, openness has these drugs were repressed for that reason alone. Yeah. So openness, depending on how, you know, if you want to imagine psilocybin, and you see the actual increase in openness in the MDMA research mm-hmm. as well. Yep. So people who recover from trauma also have an increase in openness. So yep. the more you, basically, if the therapy worked, you're more likely to see an increase in openness mm-hmm. and also some other personality changes, mm-hmm. as well as you know longer term benefits. And yep. so. And not linked to mystical experience. So in the psilocybin work, it seemed like the mystical experience was the driver of the increase in openness. In MDMA, the driver seems to be, does the therapy work? Like, was there a recovery from PTSD? In which case, yeah, the person is also more open. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to see psilocybin or MDMA accepted into mainstream society, you know, I think openness, you can say, has kind of a dark side. Yeah. Because it's like people want to... They don't want to feel, you know, anxiety and trauma. They want to live productive lives. They want to feel happy with their family. But it's like, oh, is this going to make me liberal? Is this going to like, you know, is this going to like make people quit their jobs? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, it's no matter how you cut it, psychedelics are never going to be normal medicine because they challenge these fundamental belief structures. And you cannot tell someone you come in, you take this medicine and I know who you're going to be when you leave the door. 
Yeah. You're not, you may not be who you think you, you are. You can't fully map out that change for that. And yeah. there's no other meta, I mean, maybe if some people who get like organ transplants have that kind of change in personality. Yeah. Yeah. But for the most part, if you're fixing someone medically. If you're getting them back to what, right. quote unquote, is their normal. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, let me ask you this, have you, have you done studies on, uh, we've been talking about the mystical experience. Have, uh, have you done any studies on microdosing or have any thoughts on the benefit of, uh, of that? You know, when I was at Hopkins, uh, Roland and I were talking about, so we're trying to develop, um, Roland has a very strong uh, meditation background. Mm -hmm. I was also a meditation practitioner. Mm -hmm. There was a funder who was interested in funding a study that combined, um, that looked at psilocybin and long-term meditators. Mm -hmm. And we kind of were looking at a couple different ways of studying them. And one way which I thought would be super cool was basically have people who are on a seven-day retreat and have half of the people get a microdose yep. and, or a low dose yep. and have some people get nothing and see over the course of that week whether this kind of almost undetectable amount of psilocybin had any impact on their meditation yeah. experience. And the actual, the original Good Friday study that was done at Harvard was like that. It was a group of theology students. Everyone's in the same room in this church. And half the people got psilocybin, half got placebo. And what Roland pointed out is it's really hard to mask who got what. So okay. it's like as soon as some people have start having effects, yeah. it becomes very clear that you didn't get the psilocybin. Yeah. And so yeah. we're like, how do you, you know, these meditators are very sensitive. So it's like it would truly have to be like an almost nothing yeah. dose for it to work. And then you may not find anything. Uh, so yeah. it's like kind of a big investment in like potentially not finding yeah, out exactly. anything. Yeah. And then we're like, wouldn't it be cool to study microdoses in just normal people? And some of the research being done at that unit involved giving people like micro, essentially microdoses of nicotine or caffeine mm -hmm. or other experimental drugs. Mm -hmm. um, but you would, they would come in, you'd, you'd give them the dose, they'd go back to work, and they'd check in like maybe later in the day and that's it. Yeah. And, you know, Roland said, you know, even if nothing bad happens, if someone happens to get in a car accident... Yeah. And they had just been given a microdose of yeah. psilocybin that morning. Yeah. The ramification, you know, the consequences to the, to of that. The whole, to the whole so, yeah. um, and then the final version is like you bring people into the inpatient unit for like 30 days. And yeah. that's just like depressing. Yeah. It's like nobody wants to be on the psilocybin in the yeah. inpatient unit. Yeah. And so, you know, it was like we couldn't, we really couldn't think of a smart, safe way to Makes study sense. these microdoses. Yeah. But what I can say is that every single benefit that we saw in the research was linked to moderately high or high doses. Okay. So okay. what we were considering, thought, what we were considering placebo. So mm -hmm. all the placebo uh, conditions now at Hopkins have some small amount of psilocybin. It's to help with the blinding procedure. So if I give you a pill and I say there might be nothing in this, yeah. it can actually like screw with you in terms of your expectations. Okay. But if you say this definitely has psilocybin in it, mm -hmm. It increases the placebo effect, okay. but it also increases the chance that when there's actually psilocybin, it will work. Yeah. Oh, and okay. so now there's always amount, some amount of psilocybin in every capsule that's studied. But so we actually are studying microdoses yeah. right now, and we're not finding Just that they do chance. anything. Okay. Okay. No, so we're not looking for some of the effects that I think, you know, we're not studying the repeated dosing over, you know, months. Yeah. Um, but I guess I share these stories because it's like on the one hand, I really want people to understand that the, the most benefits that have been, that are evidence-based, are linked to moderately high, high doses yeah. in a safe, supportive setting, yeah. period. Yeah. 
What's not known and what's much harder to study is are these microdoses. And so on the one hand, I have heard lots of anecdotes of people with depression, anxiety, um, not so much other conditions, but like those conditions seem to be helped by microdoses of mushrooms. Um, This is new territory. You know, if you look across, if you look at the Mazatecs in Mexico, they weren't microdosing mushrooms. Uh You know, they were using them in a very seasonal ritual way as medicine um, and actually I found out that Maria Sabina said that she believed the mushrooms worked by causing people to vomit. So she believed like very similar to ayahuasca that people were purging actually, toxins okay. and it was, it was much more about, sick and getting the toxins right. Out. And she even said at one point, she said, if they can't vomit, I'll vomit for them. So like she would take more in order to have this oh. purging effect. <laughs> so it's just like totally different than how we think about yeah. mushroom healing, you know, in America. Yeah. But so it's like, you know, they weren't really doing the microdosing thing. Um, certainly some, you know, peyote and any boga are sometimes microdosed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think within the LSD community, some people just take LSD all the time. Yeah. And I'm not sure that that says much one way or the other because some people just seem to be able to take a lot of LSD and I'm yeah. not sure what it is about them. Exactly. It's more like what's what's yeah. weird about them, yeah. not like yeah. if this yeah. could what, be... What, 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 for else. But um, yeah, I guess the like, the final thing I just want to say about the microdosing yeah. is um, it's kind of like the same thing with like 10 minutes a day mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I always love if something can be a gate to like a more profound relationship with reality. Yeah. And so if someone is taking these microdoses with the intention to open that gate mm-hmm. and to engage more fully with reality mm-hmm. and to like question their beliefs and really open up, I'm all for it. Yeah. But some of what I've seen is that microdosing seems to be just another thing that kind of makes life tolerable. Yeah. Like another, it's like super coffee or yeah. like yeah. the next kind of antidepressant. And that's yeah. just like, it's just not that exciting for me. Definitely. It's like, I don't think we need more things that make people feel like they can barely tolerate life. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a bandaid. It's like, we're, like really I mean, the urgency, it's, I mean, it's there, you know, it's yeah. like our society, our planet. It's mm. like, there's no more time to just like, Fuck around. Yeah, Excuse my language. Now. It, is, but... it is absolutely now. Um, I need to ask you something because uh, I did go to that microdosing um, thing with Duncan Trussell. Adam Strauss was there. Uh, I have to admit that I left early. I had a long day and early morning the next day. So in the beginning of the event, you handed someone, was it a flower that they mm-hmm. ate? Um, are you able to tell me? I, I didn't get to the point. At, yeah, the so, so very briefly, this I so I live on a farm. Yeah. My husband's a farmer. Good. I was going to next thing. I was going to get to the farm. Yeah, so and I was, I was thinking like, what can I bring to this New York event mm-hmm. that will? I mean, I could make all sorts of intellectual arguments for or against microdosing, yeah. mostly against, yeah. honestly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I was like, what if I can also use this as, a, um, as an opportunity to teach people about relationship and intention? Awesome. Um, and so I like, looked out in the garden, and these nasturtiums are growing there. They're edible flowers. They're kind of spicy. They're orange. They're beautiful. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to bring these flowers in and convince someone to take one, yep. but not knowing what it's going to do. Yeah. And so the really cool thing is this person, you know, you saw, he yep. volunteered. Mm-hmm. And I think if you remember, my requirement was you have to be, not be on drugs right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it was kind of like a jab at That's the whole a, community. It was yeah. like, is anyone yeah, not on uh, drugs? Like five people raised <laughs> right. their hands. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, to his credit, yeah, he was bad. very open because, like, think about it. Like, he doesn't know me. Yep. Totally. He doesn't know what this flower is. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, there's bravery there. Yeah. And so he ate it, yeah. and 
I don't know if you remember the joke. So he said his intention. So I was trying to prepare him that basically, yeah, yeah. what's he, a problem that you he want had to solved? Think of one problem, yeah. And I said, really, be, please be honest, because it might actually get solved. Yeah. You know, so yeah. like take a chance. And yeah. he said, I want to depend on drugs less. Less, yes, exactly. And so first he chose two flowers. Yep. He ate one, and then I said, do you want the other? And he said, no. And I said, oh, so it already worked. You're less yeah. dependent on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so some of that, I mean, it's completely unplanned, and yeah. it was just like, I think, a very cool way that that transpired. But basically, we called him back up at the end, and he said um, he had a lot of social anxiety about getting up in front of a crowd, mm-hmm. and it was really scary for him to be that open you know, and personal. Yeah. And he said as soon as he ate the flower, he felt this like... Deep, calm. calm, peaceful feeling come over him. I, I was watching him. He did seem calm. And, and yeah. but then he said, he, then he said, I was waiting for the drug effect. <laughs> I and I was like, did you really think I would drug you? you? Like here, dose exactly. you? And he's like, well, I don't know. Like, <laughs> and he's like, and I said, so wait, were you, I was like, were you relieved when it didn't come on? He's like, no, when I take drugs, I want he them to work. Yes. <laughs> I was like. Man, I was like, that's even more intense. I can't yeah. imagine taking something from a supposed authority yeah. figure yeah. and thinking it was actually going to dose you. Yeah. Like, in, so in, in a setting like that too. That's a, and it's like, what does that think? What does that mean about what people I think? It was I would some sort of test the <laughs> placebo, and I don't know. I so it was. It was like I was trying, to, but I was I was demonstrating. I think I was hoping to demonstrate more than just placebo, which was setting intention, okay. the relationship you have with the thing that you call medicine. Mm-hmm. And also how gullible people can be if someone who's a doctor with a PhD and studies psilocybin yeah. says, like, eat this, eat I this. promise it will be okay. Because I think, remember, I chose my words. I said, I promise I'll take care of you. You did, yeah. And so it's like, I know that that's a real ethical vow that mm-hmm. I just stated to you. But, but like, lots of other people could just absolutely. be total charlatans. Yeah. Totally. And, like, why should you believe anybody who says, I'll promise yeah. I'll take care of you. Yeah. I promise I'll solve all your problems. Yeah. Just take this thing, yeah, you'll be fine. Be fine. Yeah. And so it was kind of like a social psychology demonstration too. Of like, look at how easy it was to convince yeah. a stranger to take something that he thought had drugs in it. Yeah. And um, and then the final piece that I wanted to stress was that you know LSD in our culture has have so has so many beliefs around it, good and bad. Yeah. And so when people in Silicon Valley are taking LSD every three days, and they're reporting better creativity, yeah. more productivity, more empathy, all this other good stuff. That's informed by this like belief system around LSD. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this flower doesn't benefit from that belief system. But imagine if you grew up in a culture where like there were temples yeah. dedicated to this flower, and like babies were blessed with it, yeah. and like it was at all of the weddings, and like there was a whole cult around this flower, even if the flower still didn't do anything, yeah. it would have a much bigger impact. Yeah. And so I was like trying to test that boundary of like, you know, is it really biochemistry or is there something much more mysterious yeah. going on? Yeah, something bigger. Yeah. Yeah, cool. But he was such a great sport. Yeah, I mean, really like, was. It, you know, I was. I've, I've actually been dying to, uh, to find out that it killed me leaving. I, I was trying to even get the... <laughs> I couldn't find the video online. No, I, I think the recording didn't turn out yeah, so I well. Gave, I kept giving money to Symposia. Because <laughs> it keeps saying it's going to unlock videos. And I just keep I'm giving him money, money. And like, I'm just like, where's the video? I need to know. So thank you for that. Yeah. Let me ask you just to close down. What, uh, what's next for you? Um, you? You have a real passion for this, which is amazing. And I can assume uh, you're, you know, you're, you're going to move on in this field and do other things. What's going on? Yeah, I'm pretty excited. So I'm actually um, voluntarily uh, relinquishing the position as director of the psychedelic oh, wow. program. Okay. 
Um, very happily going to hand it off to my, you know, my co-director Ingmar right. as the so clinical it's still, director. It's, it's important. So it's yeah, I feel like we've crea- we've created something really special. I think they're probably going to keep focusing on the much more kind of clinical therapy applications mm-hmm. as well as educating clinicians. So kind of sure. carving out that niche of like this is their specialty is the clinical evidence based therapy around the use of psychedelics, mm-hmm. and. We kind of all came to an understanding that some of the more non-clinical avenues for psychedelic harm reduction are kind of like better suited for like some of these psychedelic societies or kind of like spontaneous community things to, to take on. And so I'm really excited to be working with the Brooklyn Psychedelic Society. Um, they kind of went through a little bit of a lull and now they're kind of trying to rebrand themselves and imagine like what does the psychedelic community of the future offer to people? One of those things that we're going to be doing in the month of January is a four-week course called Becoming a Psychedelic Good Samaritan. And so it's like the basics of like, what does it mean for you to be the person who can take care of yourself and others who are in a crisis or maybe are having a great experience with psychedelics but really need support during the aftermath? Or maybe they went down to the jungle and had a bad time and then they come back like you're the person who they can call. And it's kind of like a stepping stone between nothing and the full-on therapy you know medical intervention you know even um i've talked a lot about these crises people end up in where it could be a spiritual awakening it could be psychosis it could be mania and a lot of people end up in the hospital so there are good things and bad things about hospitals but for the most part they're not the best healing environments you know these psych wards they're kind of like just keep you alive keep you safe until you can kind of go back home Mm -hmm. and i love to imagine kind of how individuals can get trained up so that in that period of time, you know, if your friend is having, having this kind of weird reaction, Mm -hmm. you can help assess, like, should they get medical intervention? Should they just stay at home? Maybe they should like take a few days off work. Um, and so we're going to be doing that course, um, in the month of January. So it's psychedelicbrooklyn.com. That's where Brooklyn's like, and then, um, we also want to try and experiment with this thing called the psychedelic sanctuary. Okay. So I was involved as a pro- as a Zendo project volunteer through Maps, where they create sanctuary spaces at places like Burning Man, uh-huh. Africa Burn, all these other types of festivals, yeah. and where people are are obviously engaged in yeah. psychedelic use yeah. and drug use. Sure. And I want to kind of take that idea out of the festival environment and into the life environment, yeah. and so. Where people are also... Right. Yeah. At any given weekend in yeah. New York City, tons of people are experimenting. And so what wouldn't it be cool if there was an above-ground safe space mm-hmm. where you could stop in either during awesome. your trip or afterward? You know, maybe yeah. Sunday morning after the Saturday night party you went to, you want to talk about what you went through Absolutely. and go through some integration so cool. processing. Really creating something that doesn't exist. And there is a need for, for these people who... Not these people, people who are trying to, uh, you know use these tools and experiment with these tools and, and grow. And that's, that's yeah. amazing. And I think the thing that really excites me about the sanctuary is kind of right now you have the kind of the medical pathway mm-hmm. and that's going to take some un- unknown amount of time. I do think it will be important, probably especially for MDMA to become legalized as medicine. Okay. I'm not so convinced about psilocybin just because mushrooms are so easy to grow. Yeah. They're like the kind of the people's psychedelic. Yeah. Like they're so non-hierarchical, they're mm-hmm. sustainable, they're low cost. Yeah, it just I, seems silly to turn them into a medicine that absolutely. like is is hard to access. Yeah. So I hope I hope we see psilocybin mushrooms kind of go the direction of cannabis, that okay. it's like much more, more you natural. can grow for your own yeah. use kind of thing. 
But I do think it'll be important for MDMA to be a medicine. Absolutely. But in the meantime, wouldn't it be great for there to be a place that doesn't give you the drugs? It doesn't like even provide the shamans or the yeah. ceremony, but it's just the safe space yeah. where Education. you as a grown-up have to assume the risk yeah. of everything beyond the space. But when you show up, you are welcomed, you are taken yeah. care of. And Informed. oh, I yeah. forgot to mention it's free. It's free. There's that. So knocking out that price if point. anyone is listening and wants to help make a free space like this exist, yes. awesome. <laughs> uh, please so get cool. in touch with me. Um, what's the best way to get in touch? So yes, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm working. Uh, that for me now, I know. Uh, so KatherineMcLean.org, mm-hmm. and that's going to be my website. Right now, right. it's just kind of a holding page. Okay. But you can sign up for my newsletter, and probably starting in January, you'll get a an initial email that describes some of these cool ideas and shameless, uh, shameless, uh, desperate requests for money to make these things free and low (laughs) cost for people. This is is a good cause. I'll put those uh, websites on, uh, when when we introduce the, um, the podcast and, uh, you know, more links to everything we discussed and everything, but thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be here. Uh, I've been fascinated by, you know, this, this, this kind of revolution in psychedelics and, and, and what you do. Um, you're not only an ambassador in my eyes to, for psychedelics, but for wellness and health and ultimately happiness for people. So keep doing what you're doing. It's really awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, thank you all out there who took uh, another trip with us uh, across and beyond the margin. Across the margin. Across the margin.